Well, good morning, church family. We are in uh, Acts chapter 10 this morning, working our way through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, as we uh, jump into this passage, just want to uh, make an announcement with that as well. We'll be um, following this, uh, Acts 11 the following week, Acts 12. And then three weeks, we're going to be uh, Acts 13 and 14 lumped together uh, as a way of kind of showing the end of the book of Acts and kind of the gospel going to the end of the world. And uh, subsequently, we're going to jump from there uh, because that deals with uh, a, a place called Galatia. And we will be jumping into the book of Galatians after that. So just want to make you aware, if you're reading ahead, studying ahead, uh, we will be starting the book of Galatians here in about a month is when we'll be starting that. So, All right, well, Acts chapter 10, uh, the title of this message this morning uh, is The Welcoming Church. Uh, in the adventures of Tom Sawyer, uh, Mark Twain records the following exchange between Tom and his friend Huck Finn. Tom has just been informed uh, that Huck is not welcome um, into Tom's gang. Huck protests and says the following. He says, now, Tom, have you always been friendly to me? You wouldn't shut me out, would you, Tom? Tom replies, Huck, I wouldn't want to, and I don't want to, but what would people say? Why, they'd say, hmm, Tom Sawyer's gang, pretty low characters in it, and they'd mean you, Huck. You wouldn't like that, and I wouldn't either. <laughs> Exclusion is something that, uh, that we've all felt, whether it be with uh, peers, whether it be with uh, fellow employees, maybe, fellow students, maybe sometimes even our own families, sometimes even feeling it in the church. This has felt especially rough during those really rough years of life called junior high. Some of you don't even want to remember those years, but those are really the rough years, right? Uh, if you're in junior high not, now, we, we pray for you. Uh, that's difficult. Um, you, if you remember this, uh, this time, you, uh, we all face kind of exclusion maybe during those times and years. Um, you remember middle school years where we might be isolated at the lunchroom table. Maybe we don't make the cut on the sports team. We don't get a part in the play. We don't find our name on the party invite. Or maybe the worst, we get that note returned from the girl and she circled no, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I maybe had that happen once or twice. Uh, but we, we know what it's like. And it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable feeling where you either want to crawl into a hole or you just want to run away when you feel that. And we've all faced the exclusion at some point or another. And yet while the church is to have an exclusive message, as you've been here long enough, you understand uh, what we mean by that, that Jesus alone saves and call people to repentance, we should also have an inclusive warmth, right, about us um, and a reputation. What I mean by that is that we should have a reputation of welcoming outsiders and befriending those who, who aren't followers of Jesus. You say, where, where do we get that from? Well, we, we see it in Acts in our passage here, but this is all modeled after the life of Jesus. Matthew eleven, nineteen, 19, uh, speaking of himself, he says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? He was isolated. He was excluded uh, from groups of people for his care for others. Luke 15, 1 through 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Another one, Luke 19, 5 through 7 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, this is again the religious leaders, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Those passages are really important because we're going to see that lived out here uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 10. 
But this is, this is hard, right? But even sometimes within the church, it's hard to find, you find sometimes cliques or exclusions uh, of fellow, fellow Christians or people around us, right? Maybe they feel like, we feel like they fail us or they don't support our political opinions, they don't line up with us on something, uh, they don't share our social status or economic grouping, right? But this is a far cry from what Jesus calls us to be as a unified, welcoming group of followers of Jesus. Listen to John 17. Here's Jesus' prayer I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples at that time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, speaking of the future, us today, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may uh, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Right? That's a prayer we all need to take to heart because all followers of Jesus are susceptible to disunity. We, we can form our own cliques. We can bring about factions, and many times not out of deliberate efforts, though that may be the case at times, but mostly by our unconscious kind of actions of just shutting people out and not even realizing that we're doing it. What we find in Acts 10 today is, is, is absolutely pivotal to the early church because if the story hadn't gone as well as it did, um, there's a good possibility we, we wouldn't be here today, right? I mean, the gospel here moves beyond the, the local geographical area of people and goes way beyond that into the Gentile community. Um, the church is going to go to the ends of the, very, uh, ends of the very earth. Sorry, the very ends of the earth is what Jesus would tell them to do. And as the church does, they're also going to have to welcome those from the very ends of the earth. And that wasn't going to be easy. Uh, the church was going to go from being a very homogenous uh, Group, meaning they're very social, social, economically similar, racially similar, to heterogeneous. I think I say say that word. Different, right? A very diverse group of people through the salvation and inclusion of a Gentile and his family. And we're going to look at this passage kind of like four acts of a play. We're going to look at different characters who kind of enter the stage and kind of walk through the story together and see how we learn to be um, a welcoming, welcoming church. And here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the outsider. We're going to look at the barrier the risk taker and the barrier breaker, right? Number one, the outsider. Verses one through eight, we find here, we're introduced to a guy named Cornelius. And he is a, he's a Roman soldier. And he was a centurion as well, which means he was in command of over 100 other Roman soldiers. But unlike most Roman soldiers at this time, he was a man who believed that there was one true God. That's why I see this passage called a God-fearer. Um, he believed that he existed, not a uh, pantheon of gods like most of the Roman religions would have you believe. He was, again, a God-fear. We'll see this again in Acts 13. He'd had enough of the gods of Rome, apparently, and who could blame him, right? If you read anything about them, they were just men and women writ large, right? The same faults, same problems uh, that we as humans have. I think uh, if you've seen the film Clash of the Titans, you know what I'm talking about. And he wouldn't have to seek too long uh, before he found these very interesting people, these Jewish people would have been very different they were everywhere. They were kind of in every city, and they were an attractive group of people for their belief in monotheism. That's the idea of one God. That was very interesting um, for, for most people living in Rome. They also were interesting because they had the translation of their Hebrew Bible had been translated into Greek, the, the kind of language of the people, so they could actually read it and understand it. 
And their synagogue worship was very interesting too with their prayers and psalm singing, scripture reading, exhortation, teaching was all very unique compared to how everything else went in other religions around Rome. But Cornelius wasn't exactly a proselyte, okay? And thus he wasn't totally accepted by the Jewish people. In order to be truly accepted by the Jewish people, he had to undergo certain things. He had to be circumcised, he had to be baptized, he had to offer sacrifice, all those things to be kind of officially brought in. Being a self-respecting Roman soldier, he wasn't about to uh, commit himself to this, this group of people or submit himself to a Jewish man coming at him with a knife, right? He, didn't, he wasn't interested in going all the way uh, and being part of, of their group. But Cornelius was dissatisfied uh, with what he saw in the Roman world, and he was being drawn by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see here, uh, to himself. We call this in theology um, previant grace or a common grace that God is at work in the lives of those who even don't know him yet, and they're drawing, he's drawing them in. So if we look down at verse 3, we find a little bit more details about the story. Ninth hour, so at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is what that means. And he saw a vision, an angel uh, come to him and say, Cornelius, and he stared in terror and said, uh, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers uh, have been remembered, um, and he's going to bring someone called Simon, who we know is called Peter. So again, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, this guy is uh, Cornelius is is, is kind of hanging out at this place, and all of a sudden an angel, and maybe more likely Jesus himself, appeared to him, called him by name, which is enough to freak anybody out, right? I mean, this was, we saw when, when Jesus appeared to Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, uh, to Saul earlier on in our book of Acts, it was a pretty traumatic situation, right? So this is, this is interesting. You see anywhere in the Old Testament when the angel of the Lord appeared to somebody, they thought they were, you know, thought they were going to die. Go to the book of Judges, and you find um, Samson's parents, and they, they thought they were dead. You know, they, we, God just appeared to us. We're going to die, right? So that was always kind of the attitude or the response to that. But he's shaking here because he really isn't sure why God, who he isn't totally sure about, by the way, is appearing to him. You know, he, he's in shock at this point. He has the face of um, my youngest son, Calvin. I remember when we went to Disney, if you've ever been to Disneyland or Disney World, there's this ride um, called It's a Small World, and we put him on there, and we go through there, and I, I thought he was going to, you know, he freaked out crying, which I would be too. It's kind of weird, right? All the little faces, the little people dancing and talking, it scared him to death. That's kind of the response I feel he's having here, kind of the way he's seeing this situation. So he didn't know if God was for him or against him, right? He didn't know why this God would appear to him. He hadn't heard the gospel yet, which he will in, in shortly here. All he knew was that God was great. He understood that God was worthy of, of uh, obedience, and so he gave it. But the concept of God dying on, on his behalf to make him acceptable to him is something completely foreign to him he hadn't heard yet. And so he didn't know Jesus yet. He was, he was, he was a nice person, we could say, but not a new person yet. He needed to repent, not just of, the, of what he couldn't achieve, but his efforts to try to achieve them. He needed to repent, not just of his sins, but of his best deeds done out of trying to earn favor with God, right? He then had to believe in Jesus and trust in his finished work. That's why Peter's important in the story. That's why Peter's going to come along and help fill in the information. And so this reaffirms to us, as we've seen throughout Acts and throughout even Matthew before that, that the only way to God is through Jesus. Remember, Saul referred to these Christians as the way. Remember, that's what they referred to them back in chapter 9, verse 2. They were referred to as the way, not Christians or followers of Jesus. They were just called the way. Why? Because they got that from Jesus, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said what? I am the 
way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. See, it's okay. You can finish them if you know them, all right? It's good. You can do that. And so, uh, so understand the only way to get to God is via Jesus and his finished work. There is no other way, no other paths, no other roads. We either take all that Jesus said or we take none of it. It's not a buffet. We get to choose what we like and don't like and pick apart, right? So here we find um, our outsider, Cornelius. He's outside the circle. He's outside of God. God is at work in him. And at the same time, we're going to find out he's also at work in the life of Peter and the other followers of Jesus at the same time. But there's a barrier, really quite, quite literally a barrier between him and hearing, him hearing about God. So let's look at number two. The barrier, beginning down in verse 9, uh, we imagine, because he is referred to as a God-fearer, that Cornelius probably wants to be on the inside. He doesn't want to be excluded from God, but he doesn't know any other way than to try to be just a good person, you know? He tried to get close maybe to the Jewish people, but there was a barrier that was too high to climb. He couldn't get in, and most didn't actually want to get in, right? Uh, like Saul last week, we find that Cornelius most likely faced rejection by the people of God when he tried to show up. See, to be an Israelite, and may I help you understand the culture and why this is important at the time, to be an Israelite was to be in covenant with God. To be a non-Israelite was to be considered God's enemies, referred to many times in the Bible as Gentiles. You see that phrase come up a lot. That's a non-covenant group of people, right? non-Jewish people at the time. The borders of Israel as an Israelite, were considered to be the borders of God's kingdom. The, bo- the boundaries of Jacob's family was considered to be the boundaries of God's people. And there were very clear differences that marked the boundaries, including a temple in the very center of Jerusalem where God was accessed, right? It's where they, they went to go be near him. And there was literally a dividing wall in the temple. There was a court of the Gentiles, which is the outskirts of the temple, and everything else in the middle was, bar- was a barrier around that you were not supposed to cross or go over. Matter of fact, I've showed you this a couple weeks ago. There was a five-foot barricade that went around the inside of the temple to keep anybody who was not Jewish out. And uh, there was even a sign on that that, uh, that basically said, no foreigners to enter within the gate. Uh, whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his own death. Right? So they took it very seriously. So you could get close if you were a Gentile, but you couldn't get all the way in. Right? You couldn't quite see what was going on inside there and, uh, and understand that. It was such a big deal Uh, we'll find out in the book of Acts, to have a Gentile kind of pass over that wall, that when the Jewish people thought Paul took a Gentile with him uh, into that area in Acts 21, you can read that in Acts 21, they actually tried to kill Paul because they thought he brought brought someone who was a Gentile with him into the area. Also, uh, the Jewish people wouldn't eat with Gentiles. Uh, They wouldn't welcome them into their homes, and they surely wouldn't worship uh, with them either. So the uh, concept of even the building of here of, of racism and cultural prejudice was pretty deep uh, in this culture. It's nothing, we're, we're facing nothing new uh, today in our world. Um, and so we find that uh, that, that was happening. The, matter of fact, some of the things that would happen uh, culturally, the dirt from a Gentile country was considered defiled. And so a Jewish person, when they would come back and cross the border, would literally shake off their sandals of the dirt to get the Gentile dirt off of their feet. They would not eat food prepared by Gentile hands. And the cooking utensils, if they did purchase some that were from Gentiles, they had to be, go through a certain method of purification before a Jew could even use uh, those utensils. Some Jewish people vowed to not even uh, help a Gentile woman in childbirth because that would be helping another Gentile enter into the world. And I've told you before, the prayer typically of a Jewish man at the end of each day was, God, thank you that I am not a slave, a woman, 
or Gentile, right? That gives you a pretty deep understanding of uh, there were some hardships going on. There was some tension going on, to say the least, among these groups of people. And before you feel like I'm just picking on the Jewish people, understand, too, the Gentiles had the same, it was, it was reciprocated, okay? They hated the Jewish people as well. Uh, they thought they were egocentric, arrogant people who cared nothing but about themselves. They, in general, wanted nothing to do with this kind of strange, weird group of people, in their opinion. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, which we will read a little bit later, will give you some of these details. And you can see the deep animosity between these groups. It was going to literally take a miracle of God to bring these two groups of people together. So when they heard in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that they were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, those first three were, first one was, okay, we got that. Uh, Judea, Samaria, that's a tough one. Ends of the earth, you gotta be kidding me. (laughs) This is gonna go past the borders? This is gonna go to people who are completely non-Jewish? That was a huge deal in this culture. So look at verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So here we find Peter. He's our barrier breaker. Uh, he's, uh, he's, a, he's in Joppa, which is basically a beach community. He's, uh, he's sitting up there, I don't know, taking in some rays, hitting the surf. I don't know what he's doing. But he has no idea about what Jesus is about to do with him. Only a few years have passed. Now, let's remember, if you know Peter and who he is, only a few years have passed since his really ultimate failure, right? When he left Jesus, abandoned him, denied him. Um, but Jesus has washed him, he's redeemed him, and he's going to use him uh, in ways he probably thought were not possible anymore, right? That's encouraging to think about when we think about Peter's story. God can use you despite your past. If he does so with Peter, he can do it with you. Think about what's going on here in this situation. Why is Jesus sending for Peter to tell the gospel to Cornelius? Couldn't he just have told him himself? We, We had... An angel of God or Jesus himself appeared to Cornelius and appeared to Peter. Why didn't you just expedite the process and just, just tell him yourself? Why are you coming to get me to go tell him, right? Why, why go through all of this? It's true that God does and can uh, do things like this. We saw him do it in Acts 9, right, with Saul. We saw him you know, divinely kind of jump in there and basically uh, go after Saul, And so we understand that God doesn't need us um, or the rest of creation for anything, but he can do all things all by himself if he so chooses. Later on in Acts 17, Paul would say this, Saul, who became Paul, said that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And so this is the awesome thing about Jesus. He doesn't need us at all, but the wonderful thing is that he wants to use us, right? That's what I love about this story. He could have bypassed Peter altogether and just done it himself, clearly, but he doesn't do that. He did create us. He has determined that we would be meaningful to him, and he would use us. We're brought into a relationship with God through faith in the gospel. God not only uses us, but he wants to use us. That's a crazy thought. We who are enemies of God, he wants to now use us in the lives of people. And so he uses people just like Peter, despite his past. And Peter is significant because he is significant to God. And he's significant to God because he is now God's son. And he's God's son because Jesus is alive and paid for his sin by dying on the cross. There is no personal, greater personal significance than that. But Peter still needs the gospel too. You understand that? Not that he doesn't need to get saved again, I'm not saying that. But Peter needs the gospel as much as Cornelius does. He needs to hear it to continue to sanctify him and change him and make him more 
like Jesus. Without Jesus working on Peter, he would never accept this invitation, right, to the Gentiles. Look at verse 10. Here's how Jesus works on him. He became hungry, wanted something to eat, and while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. So here's Peter up on top of his roof. They were kind of like, uh, like Spanish-style roofs, right? They were flat roofs at the top. And, uh, and since they were typically smaller homes and uh, crowded, if people wanted some alone time, right, they'd go on a rooftop and hang out on top of the roof um, and uh, have some privacy. So while he's up there, I don't know, watching the waves there at the ocean on his beach, beachfront you know, condo here, he becomes hungry. And he yells down for someone apparently to prepare, uh, prepare food for him. And so while he's smelling the, the fresh fruits and vegetables being cut up, I don't know, the impossible whopper being made for him down there in the kitchen, Peter falls into a trance. He's practically a vegetarian for the most part at this point. He's about to be converted into a carnivore, okay? Look at this, verse 11. He saw the heavens opened, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So suddenly, instead of seeing fields of green here, um, he saw the vision, and what he saw on this uh, was, was basically bacon, uh, sausage, uh, five guys, cheeseburgers, fatback. You remember fatback? I remember that from Virginia. It's like it's the most disgusting thing in the world. It's just fat, and it's been deep fried. You don't want that. But anyway, but, uh, but stuff like that is on the blanket. It's all frying up. I don't know, some giant frying pan, uh, grease popping everywhere, right? And it's placed on this nice picnic blanket that's kind of dropped down in front of Peter. And this is, uh, this is, for most of us, would be maybe appealing or appetizing, but not for Peter. This was in no way kosher, okay? This went against everything he knew as a Jewish man, everything he was raised in, okay? He, uh, these animals were forbidden to eat in the Old Testament ceremonial law. You can go back and read Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you'll find the laws given to the Jewish people. They were forbidden to eat these kind of animals, and then he hears what I'm sure he thought he heard wrongly, that he's supposed to not just kill these animals, which may have been okay for him to do, but then he's supposed to eat them, <laughs> which is crazy. So verse 14, you can understand Peter's response. He says, no, <laughs> no, uh, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again, a second time. What God has made clean, this is, important, little, this is an important phrase. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once. In other words, Peter kept saying no. It took three, three different times for him to keep rolling down the blanket, you know, kill it, eat it, here we go. Um, and we can tell from Peter's response that though he understands he's saved by grace, he still thinks there's still, he's still obligated to follow this kind of maybe Old Testament code of laws. And as Paul would say later in the book of Romans, we're not under law, but under grace, the new covenant provided by Jesus removed these Old Testament laws as binding and placed them on a new set of laws. Um, the law of love was to be towards God and towards man. Jesus would summarize that, right? The greatest commandments, love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the laws would no longer be used for a nation, actually. This is new for them, but a diverse culture of people throughout time and history. God's moral laws, right, of not murdering, committing adultery, would remain. Jesus would reiterate those throughout the Gospels and say, hey, this is what it means to love God, what it means to love your neighbor. But the specific ceremonial and these kind of laws like this, were legal laws were kind of done away with. And so God tells him to not call common what he calls clean. In other words, I've got a new way for you to live, Peter. You're not going to honor me by maybe keeping some dietary laws, but by loving me, and letting down your biased guard to love others who are different from you. 
And so in saying this, Jesus did make it clear that Christians can eat whatever they want, but just like everything else uh, that's good from God, uh, we can turn that into an idol as well, so we have to be careful with those. But I imagine Peter is thoroughly confused here. He was sure that there were categories that everyone and everything fit into based on either performance or pedigree, right? This is just, there's just categories of people. There's groups, places you go, places you don't go. There were certain animals as well as certain people that were off limits to God and people. But Peter was about to have a breakthrough here. The gospel that had saved him is going to now work on him in sanctifying and changing how he viewed people. So let's look at our risk taker here. So Peter's our risk taker, uh, starting down at verse 17. We find Peter, it says, he's inwardly perplexed, right? He is completely trying to figure this thing out. Like, I'm not quite sure what I just saw and heard here, right? And, um, and so he's there. He's, he, he's, um, the men who were sent by Cornelius uh, are there at the gate. They called out uh, to ask whether Peter, Simon, who's called Peter, was lodging there, and they did. Uh, Peter's there pondering the vision, and someone said, the Spirit of God said there, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go. So Peter doesn't really get yet what Jesus is saying here, at least not, not yet, but he will. Just as he's kind of thinking about this, right, considering what is this whole vision and what is it, rise, kill, and eat, nothing's unclean, like what are you talking about? Just as he does that, he hears a knock on his door. And at the same moment, the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with these guys and don't ask any questions, just go. And he, like Jesus in the Gospels, would, would be to, uh, he would he'd be given what to say, right? He'll be given what to say. No time to plan out the journey, no time to pack bags, deliberate over it. He's just supposed to go. So knowing Peter, he probably thinks that this Cornelius guy, I imagine he's probably thinking, okay, so they're going to bring me some of this food to eat, right? This is what I imagine he's thinking. Okay, so these guys, these Gentiles are going to bring me some food. I'm supposed to eat this kind of food that I thought was wrong, but I guess it's okay, um, and so he, he ends up, it, it, Pastor says he ends up crashing uh, there at their place. Stays there for the night. Um, and so we can imagine as he's there, they're going to leave first thing in the morning. And so I imagine what's going through Peter's mind as his head hits the pillow that night. You know, I'm, supposed to, I'm supposed to say something? What am I supposed to say? And, and what was this picnic blanket vision earlier? I don't hang out with Gentiles, so why do I need to go there? Isn't it enough that I've welcomed him into my home that's more than most people would do, right? I mean, he's just probably, all these things are going through his head. And so the next morning, he gets up, takes some friends with him, and it says in verse 25, Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshiped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I'm a man too. And he talked with him, and went in and found many persons gathered. So here's the setting. They get Peter, they leave in the morning, they head to, to this town, and Peter walks in to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius just falls down on his face, and it says here, worships him. And Peter, of course, tells him, knock it off. I'm just a man, I'm not the pope. It's not how it works, okay? It's not, it's not how this worked at all. Um, the best of men are men at best. And so Peter walks, and he walks in the kind of living room area, and he sees that Cornelius here has gathered all of his friends, right? He's gathered all these different friends with him. And uh, he may have never been inside of a Gentile's home before. This is very different for him. So verse 28 he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So see, somewhere in that journey, Peter got it, right? He got what, he was, what God was trying to say to him. So I was sent for, I came without objection, I ask you why, I'm here. why am I here? So Peter just opens his mouth, says what he's thinking, typical Peter, right? 
And he tells them that as a Jew, this is not only strange and unorthodox, this is wrong. Like, I'm not supposed to be doing this as a Jewish man. But he realized that his identity is not being found in law-keeping as a Jewish man anymore, but in being a son of God, a recipient of grace. And so he makes the connection between the vision and these guys and says, you know what, I get it now. I'm not any different from you, right? And he invites Cornelius to explain to him, now why am I here? Apparently I have something I'm supposed to tell you. So Cornelius tells him his vision. He says he and his family and friends are here to hear about Jesus, basically. And he wants Peter to, to, uh, to get on explaining it to us. Can you tell us about Jesus? I mean, this is slow pitch, softball, you know, waist high. He cranks on it, hits it out of the park, right? Drops the bat, flip, and goes. I mean, he, this is easy. I mean, he's just being invited in. Please, I've gathered all my friends. Please tell us all about Jesus. Now, I want you to know, I want you to notice the great amount of courage and risk-taking this took for Peter. Again, I know as you're trying to think about the culture, it's different from maybe where you are right now, but it took a great amount of courage. Peter, as a Jewish man, is risking losing his friends. He's risking himself being isolated and excluded from his group of friends, his peers, by even going to Cornelius' house. This is a real struggle. It's so much of a struggle. We'll see this in the book of Galatians. We get to Galatians 2, we'll find that Peter actually ends up succumbing to this. He forgets the gospel in many ways. Like he, he, it's like a junior high setting. He comes in, he's eating with the Gentiles at lunch, and the Jewish people show up, and he leaves the table and joins the Jewish table, you know, and leaves behind his Gentile friends. Like he totally succumbs to this peer pressure of the culture of being associated with your group of people. So this is a big deal. But this is the grace of God at work in Peter. The gospel is settling into his soul so that what is most important to him is not his reputation or even his inclusion into a peer group, but the needs of this man who is right in front of him. If you want to experience the work of God in your life, then you're going to have to step out, you're going to have to get uncomfortable, and you're going to have to take risks to love and care for people that are just very different from you, right? We see Jesus do this over and over in the Gospels, right? We read about that earlier. We need to show the same type of courage to love and care for those different from us, those outside of our group, outside of our tribe, as it were, and see, and see the gospel break down the barriers of our own heart, just like they do with Peter and with Cornelius. So God's at work in both of them. Let's look at the last part, the barrier breaker, down in verse 34. So Peter opens his mouth. He goes, all right, I can, I can tell you about Jesus. And so he does, right? He unleashes on this one. Uh, Peter got the gospel here. It wasn't just an entry point. Jesus' death and resurrection were meant to hit him every single day and affect every area of his life, especially how he saw people. That is one of the most radical things the gospel does is it changes how you see people. Radically does. If you've come to Jesus and you think you've come to Jesus, you claim to have come to Jesus, and you don't see people differently, you want to backtrack on that one and go look at it again because the gospel transforms how you see and treat people. And so this is what happened with Peter. He was supposed to, um, you know, the, the, this, whole, this whole idea for Peter was, was completely new. But the, but the work of the gospel had, had an ongoing effect on his life. Here he realizes that the cross must mean that God has a heart for reaching not just his world, but the entire world. And so he probably remembers back at the cross. Remember at the cross there was a scene there in the gospel of John where there's a Roman centurion, just like Cornelius, who bowed down at the cross, right, and surrendered there. Surely this was the Son of God. He must have recalled Simon of Cyrene, who helped Jesus carry his own cross, who was also a Gentile and not part of the tribe. 
this is something that was, was interesting. It was changing him. God was interested in reaching everyone regardless of age, race, or gender, right? It doesn't matter. Peter understood in the gospel that God was saying, even those things that are defiled and unfit for my presence, God's saying, I can make them clean. I can make them fit for my presence. There is nothing I cannot make clean. The gospel means that salvation is not a matter of pedigree or even of achievement, but it's a result of the action of God on your behalf. The gospel means that no Christian can feel superior to any other Christian or even non-Christian for that matter. Why? Because we are who we are by the grace of God. Must never forget that God has shown favor to us precisely because, you know why? Because God doesn't show favoritism. <laughs> That's the only way. That's the, only, that's the only way you and I ever became followers of Jesus. You are not a Christian today. Make sure you understand, hear me clearly on this one. You are not a Christian today because you are smarter, you're better looking, you're more gifted, you're a harder worker than those other people out there. It's not how it works, right? You are a Christian by the grace of God, period. Nothing of yourself, nothing. If God did show favoritism, if he only took those who were good, moral, righteous, and you know, above everybody else, you know he would take? Nobody. Nobody. Peter says uh, that people are being worked on all over, all over the world. Uh, the gospel was global. It blew his mind. Christianity was attractive because it was like no other religion anyone had ever heard of at the time. It was founded on grace, not on works. And so he goes down to verse 37. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Here he speaks of Jesus um, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed it says, we are witnesses, Peter says, of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death, hanging him on a tree. And God raised him up a third day and he appeared to us and he commanded us to preach to people. So Peter presents a gospel message as clear as he can to Cornelius and his friends and family. He understood. Jesus lived the life he couldn't live. Jesus loved the people no one else cared about. He died the death that we should have died. He bore the penalty for sin being hung on a tree on a cross and then he came back from the dead, and as the living judge, he says here at the very end, that everyone must submit to for forgiveness. So verse 44, Peter, while he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. They're all, all in shock. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. I mean, before Peter even finishes preaching his sermon, <laughs> the Holy Spirit takes the gospel, applies it to the heart of these hearers, of these Gentiles, and this was a fantastic scene. I mean, they're, they're probably completely eyes wide open on this one. Peter says, he, um, says basically, we need to take the next step now. I mean, obviously, you understand the gospel, you received, you've received the gospel, you received Jesus, you know what we need to do now? We need to get you baptized. And so he does, right? That's the next step. In the end, Peter needed Cornelius as much as Cornelius needed Peter. They both needed to hear the gospel. And the gospel changed them both for good. You need, you need that person. This is really applicable, right? You need the person who rubs you the wrong way. I know you don't want, you don't want them around, but, but they're there for a reason. As much as they need you. And only the gospel is going to mend and unite. As a matter of fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, God will send many people along your way that will irritate you. Okay? <laughs> who don't agree with you. Um... And it'll do that to help you learn to apply the gospel in how you see people. So there'll be difficult people put in your life. And you can lean to the person next to you right now and say, you're welcome. Okay, that's why I'm in your life. God put difficult people in your life and I'm it, right? But this is how it works. God is, he, he wants to shape 
the truth of the Bible is supposed to shape our vision and how we see and treat people is what I'm saying. So it's not just mental understanding. It affects how we treat people. And so God will put difficult people in your life. People don't agree with you and all of those things just so that you can grow in applying the gospel and how you love and treat people. I imagine um, that night Peter laid down. I'm sure he was overwhelmed at how Jesus had worked in him. He had to marvel that <laughs> what he had seen in Jesus' life, literally, Peter's living it out. He's living out exactly what happened in Jesus' life by the grace of God. The gospel melted Peter's heart because he understood that he himself was once an outsider to God. He was separated from him because of his sin and honestly wanted nothing to do with him. And even maybe when Peter had the occasional thought of returning to God, getting to know him, he had that barrier of sin that was insurmountable, a barrier that kept him from Jesus' love and grace and forgiveness. And yet when Peter couldn't act for himself, when he couldn't cross the great divide there, Jesus crossed it for him, right? Jesus went looking for Peter one day, and we see in the Gospels, and he told Peter, you follow me. You know what he did? He followed him, right? Jesus went after him. You see, Jesus is the ultimate risk taker in our story here. He didn't just risk convenience or comfort or social status or familial ties like Peter did. He risked his own life. He gave up heaven with the Father, the comfort of a loving community, the adoration of angels to come to this broken world and not just live among us, but give his life and be separated on the cross from everything he loved and adored for our sake. And when he died, we understand the gospels that the father turned his back on him. Why? Because he became sin for us. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, rose again, and he broke the barrier, right? He broke really literally out of the ground, out of that, out of that tomb. He tore down the barrier that divided you and God and bridged the gap with his own body so that now we can, we can walk across to God. I mentioned Ephesians 2 earlier. Listen to this. This is what the gospel does. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access, Jew and Gentile, in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers. Isn't that great? No longer a stranger, no longer an alien. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It has to change how you view people different from you. The gospel must make you a welcoming person. It must make us a welcoming church. Some of us have real problems with people, whether they're Christians or whether they're not. And when you look at the cross long enough until we repent of our pride and our selfishness and our unforgiving spirit, we, we have to be that kind of people. As we go to communion, I want you to think about something. As a matter of fact, you can, you can pull your phone out, write this down, or do it on a piece of paper, or do it later. But think about this. It, on, I'm going to use paper, but just imagine you have your phone here, okay? Two pieces of paper, one excluded list on both sides. On one side of this excluded list, I want you to write down all the people that you have a problem with. All the people that you exclude, it may be particular names of people, it may be kinds of people, it may be, you know, someone who's different from you socially or politically or whatever it may be, right? Write those people down that are excluded by you. 
And on the other side, I want you to write down, exclude this, I want you to write down your name. And I want you to remember, right at the top of that one, Jesus and mark that out. Because you weren't excluded anymore. You were excluded by God because of sin, but Jesus broke down that barrier, went across that divide, right? And actually welcomed you in, so you're no longer excluded from God. How then can we, who have been included into God, right? Who have been brought near through Christ, how can we ever look at someone else and exclude them to care about them and love them and, and minister to them, right? So that, that's how the gospel has to change us because we see what God's done for us and we see how God brought us across and how God brought us in that we can turn and do the same to others, right? So as we go to communion, think about that. Think about who that is, particular people, groups of people that maybe you're struggling with. We forgive because Christ forgave us. We love people different from us. We love people maybe we don't like at times. Why? Because Jesus loved us and we were exactly the same to him, right? The little cup there with bread and juice, we do in remembrance of him. We remember his body and blood broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance. Uh, we'll have some time, a quiet time here, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, take, uh, we'll have you take it when you're ready, all right? If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if all this is kind of weird and foreign to you, that's okay. We'd love to answer your questions. Communion, not for you. Um, but uh, let me pray for us and we'll finish up this morning. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to take communion. We get to remember in a very tangible way your body that was broken for us and your blood that was poured out for us. God, we get to remember that we, we too were once foreigners, alien, excluded from you, and honestly wanted nothing to do with you, and yet you came after us. We ran as far as we could, as hard as we could. We fought you, and yet you overpowered us. And God, we thank you that it is all of grace to be in relationship with you. God, help us to be gracious to others. As God, as we've been forgiven in Christ, help us to forgive others. As we've been shown grace, help us show grace to others. As we've been loved by God, help us to love others. God, this is why the gospel is so important for us to look at every single week and really every day so that God, our hearts are melted in how we see, view, and treat people. God, make us a welcoming community. God, we have a, we have a very exclusive gospel. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And yet, God, we are a people who are to love and care for all. We pray you to help us uh, in becoming more like you in that way, even if it costs us, God, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it means we get excluded from maybe peers or friends. Um, help us to do that just like you did. In Jesus' name, amen.